Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. On October 26, 1961, after a study session at Transylvania University, 19-year-old Betty Gale Brown got into her car around midnight. Three hours later, she was found dead, strangled. Her murder remains unsolved. Professor Robert Lawson draws an, uh, on uh, official sources and his own notes to provide an invaluable record of one of Kentucky's most famous cold cases. Professor Lawson will be just one of more than 180 authors and writers at this year's November 18th Kentucky Book Fair with his new publication, Who Killed Betty Gale Brown? Murder, Mistrial, and Mystery. Bob Lawson was on the faculty of the University of Kentucky Law School for decades, serving twice as dean of law school. He was the principal drafter of both the Kentucky Penal Code and the Kentucky Rules of Evidence and was inducted into the UK College Hall uh, Law Hall of Fame uh, not that many years ago, but uh, now he returns uh, to uh, public life as an author. How does it feel? Well, you know, it feels good. It's not the first thing I wrote. It's uh, In lots of ways, this book is similar to one I wrote about the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire. And I uh, wrote it in uh, about 1982, I think, and it was published by the Ohio University Press. And it was, I tried to write an accurate historical account of that event, and that's what I've done here. But we both have to admit that's a few years ago. So yeah. between 1982 <laughs> and, and 2017 and 18, that, that's, a, yeah. that, that's a span of, uh, you know, sometimes uh, you hear about... Uh, famous mystery writers like James Patterson, you know, they're turning out, a, or John Grisham, they're turning out a book a year, and, yeah. and some people think that's not enough. So uh, you're, uh, you, you've, uh, you've taken some time with this. Uh, let me ask you, why this story um, and, and your interest and how long you've had that interest? Well, I think it is one of the most fascinating uh, matters that I was ever involved in as a, as a lawyer. And uh, I just happened to be brought into the case in uh, 1965 after uh, Alex Arnold confessed to it. And uh, right before uh, that occurred, the United States Supreme Court had uh, rendered a decision requiring that people who have no money be provided lawyers by the state. And ultimately, that would be done with the public defender system. But in those days, they had no public defender system, so courts had to find lawyers who would provide representation to indigent defendants without pay. And I got brought into that with another lawyer, and uh, it was just, uh, you know, this was probably the most fascinating experience that I ever had, and it lasted for about a year and a half. And I always wanted to write about it and kept my notes and a lot of other stuff. And so when I retired, I decided I'd see what I could do with it. And, uh, and that's, that's how I did it. What was fascinating about the case? Well, uh, it was two things. I think, the, uh, I think there's two separate historical events here. 
The first one was the murder of Betty Gail Brown. And of course, uh, that uh, murder captivated the city of Lexington and the whole state of Kentucky for, uh, oh, I don't know, a couple of years. And it has continued to draw interest and attention for 50 years. Now, I think it was partly because of the circumstances surrounding the murder and partly because Betty Gail Brown was anything but a typical murder victim. And it just drew unbelievable attention in the press. I've never seen anything like it. And uh, <clears throat> so that made it really interesting. And then that got, that got elevated uh, in 1965. That occurred in 1961, in, in October of 61. And they investigated the case very aggressively for about two years. Never did get a legitimate uh, lead on the thing. And then it sort of died down. And then in 1965, Alex Arnold, who was, he had, uh, he had deep roots in Kentucky, primarily in Lexington. But he was in jail in Klamath Falls, Oregon uh, in January of 1965. And uh, while he was there, and the circumstances were very unusual, uh, he told uh, a detective there that he had murdered Betty Gill Brown. And so uh, there, this is the most interesting confession that I've ever seen in my life. I really th even thought about, if you were writing this book about just that second half of it, you'd call it the trial of a confession because that's what the whole case was about, was his confession and the extent to which you could rely on it. So I think it was the two things. It was, it was the way in which the murder occurred and the victim. Remember, she was strangled to death with her own brassiere. And uh, they never really uh, even got a, a legitimate lead on it until Arnold stepped forward and then and he confessed. So that was what made it, I think, a very interesting event. So I want to ask you to describe for our listeners uh, the, the two principal um, protagonists, uh, and that would be Betty Gail Brown and, and Arnold. Um, so first, what did you know about her? What did you find out about her after her death? Um, uh, that, that made her a, uh, an, uh, an atypical uh, yeah. murder victim? Well, <clears throat> here's the way I would describe her. Uh, she was a very attractive 19-year-old female. Uh, she had been raised in a, uh, a middle-class neighborhood here in Lexington on a Lackawanna Road, which is, you know, it was in the outskirts at that time. Uh, and she was the only child of um, a father who was an insurance salesman for Metropolitan Life Insurance and a, and a stay-at-home mother who worked sometime as a home decorator. She, was, she had the, an absolutely perfect relationship with her parents. And then she graduated from high school and started college at Transylvania in 1960, in the fall of 1960. And most of the students on the Trancy campus lived in dormitories, but she stayed at home. She lived at home and drove across town to the campus every day. 
but she was very heavily involved in campus activities, belonged to its most significant sorority. She had tons and tons of friends, and she had no enemies. And she had, she was perfectly satisfied with her position in life at the time. And then <coughs> uh, on, the, on the day of this occurrence, it was an ordinary day for her. She went to school, went to classes, came back home, and she had dinner with her parents. And then she told them she had to go back to school to study for an exam she had the next day. And she told them she'd be home at 11 o'clock. So she went and she studied in a dormitory with some other uh, friends. And at 12 o'clock, she left there and a, a male friend of hers was outside the dorm and saw her get in her car and he saw her head down a street that would have taken her home in about 15 minutes. Well, she never got there. And her parents, her mother in particular, got in the car and started looking for her. She made two or three trips to the campus. And then at 2.30, they reported her missing to the police and they put the word out. And then it was a little bit after three o'clock in the morning that this police officer, he looked in the driveway over there on the campus and he saw uh, that there was somebody sitting in a car that looked like the one that had been described in that bulletin that had been put out. And he thought that she was there, a driver, and he goes up and what he sees would be shocking to anybody. I mean, he saw what looked like a teenage girl. She was sitting under the steering wheel with her feet on the floor and her head over the back of the car and she had a bra hanging around her neck from shoulder to shoulder, and she was obviously dead. Now, that was the nature of the murder, but uh, Betty Gail Brown had tons of friends on the campus, and she had no enemies, and everybody characterized her as a friendly, uh, nice, uh, happy young woman. And so that is what made her, t to me, to be unique in terms of uh, of a homicide victim. Do you remember the first time you met Arnold? Yes, I do. Uh, he was he was in jail out in Klamath Falls when he gave this confession, and he uh, gave him a written confession on a Saturday, and they brought him back here, and uh, the. The person that I was uh, defending him with was Amos Eblen, who was a very highly respected lawyer in, in Lexington. He was lead counsel, and I was helping. Uh, we talked with Arnold on Monday, so that would have been, oh, that would have been two or three days after his confession. Now, when he gave his confession, first time he gave it, he was uh, sort of at the back end of suffering delirium tremens. Alex Arnold was a drunk, and he had been drunk for probably 10 years up to the time of that confession, except for he spent one year in prison for solicitation of prostitution was what he was charged with. But except for that, he'd been drunk ever since he got out of the military in 1953 or 54. And he was put in jail out there, and <clears throat> about two or three days after being deprived of his alcohol, he started seeing creatures on the wall and talking to toilet paper and all that kind of stuff. And then it was the next day or so after that uh, 
that he made, he gave the first confession, uh, and he gave it to a detective from the uh, Klamath Falls Police Department. But the first time I saw him would have been the Monday after the confession, and uh, he was, oh, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but he, he wasn't normal even then. Now, he would have been better than he was whenever, he, whenever they took the confession from him, but he didn't want to talk. He was uh, very subdued, and we had to extract it from him question by question. But he did tell us that he killed her. Uh, that was the first time we talked to him. So he admitted uh, to you that he killed her? He admitted to us, and he kept admitting to us. And then gradually he changed. You know, as we moved closer to the trial, he started to have some doubts as, as you know, we put things in his, you know, in his hands. And then when we get to the trial of the case, uh, we put him on the witness stand. Now, we had a lot of difficulty making that decision as to whether not to put him up there because we thought we thought we had the possibility of a death sentence on our hands with this case. But we ultimately decided that if we don't put him up there, we've got no chance here because they'll think we're hiding stuff from them. So we put him on the witness stand, and when he got on the witness stand, he said to the jury, I don't believe I killed her, but I'm not sure of that. So even in his testimony, he basically said, you know, uh, uh, now he had earlier been saying it, but the first time he ever talked about this, Bill, was to that detective in, uh, in Oregon. And that detective, he, he asked to talk to some police officer, and that detective came over, and the detective said, I understand you want to talk to me. And he said, yes. And he said, well, what are you going to talk about? He said, I think I killed a woman back in Kentucky. And the detective said, well, when did you do that and who would you kill? He said, well, I don't know. It was two or three years ago, and it was Betty Gail Brown, a student on, on the campus. And the detective said, are you sure you killed her? He said, I'm 99% sure I killed her. So, I mean, he never had a certain absolute belief that he had done it, and his belief changed over time to where at the end of it, when he got on the witness stand, he basically said, I don't believe I killed her, but I'm not sure. What evidence did the prosecution have? They had virtually nothing but the confession. Now, you know, so this was a, this was a case that could easily have been called the trial of a confession. That's basically what it was. And they didn't, they didn't have much, and we, we attacked the accuracy of pieces of it, but the, but the main thrust of our defense with respect to the confession was there's nothing in it that wasn't in the newspapers. Now he was around here at the time. He was, he was a drunk. He was hanging around down on Main Street around a bar, and was involved in a prostitution ring down there. Uh, but he was there during that whole time. There was not one thing in his confession that was not in the newspaper except the piece, the point in his confession that drew the most attention and that elevated the interest in this thing. He said, uh, I was drunk this night. I went uh, at midnight. I decided that I wanted to sleep it off. 
I decided to go up to Gratz Park, and I went up to Gratz Park. I was going to sleep there, and there were too many people there, so I crossed the street, went over onto the campus, and found myself a, a place behind some bushes and went to sleep, and then I woke up from the cold. And then I decided to go back down the street. Now, he says, I'm walking across the campus, and I see this car parked in front of the of Morrison Hall, which is the main campus thing. And he said there were two girls in that car and they were making love with each other, kissing and hugging. And then he said, as I walked by, I asked them for a match. I wanted to smoke and I didn't have any matches. They got mad at me and screamed at me and I walked on. Then they screamed even louder and got mad and I went back and I opened the door and grabbed the girl and slammed her head against The other girl ran. Now that's basically the confession that he gave. And <clears throat> the prosecution didn't even try to prove anything that would show that she had a relationship with other women, other girls. And we had tons of evidence showing that she had relationships with other boys. She had, she had high school boyfriends. She dated a lot of boys in college. We put her mother and father on the witness stand to testify to that. So uh, that was sort of the nature of the, of the defense. They, the, they relied so heavily on the confession. They had nothing else. They had nothing that they could connect him to it. Did you try to find the alleged uh, second uh, female that was in the car with her? And did you ever uh, try to uh, question whether or not she had uh, a female relationship we we did everything we could uh, but the problem is there was no evidence everything that we looked at pointed in the other direction and we talked to her mother and her father and we actually put them on the witness stand to testify in the case but but the state made absolutely no mention of that factor in their evidence they didn't even try to support that that aspect of it and their their explanation for it was well he's just trying to he's trying to help himself by making her look bad uh, but <clears throat> I, I think the um, you know I think the outcome of the case probably was was heavily dependent upon the fact that they didn't have anything other than the confession to connect him to it and and we we punched some holes in the confession. The one involving the the other female mm -hmm. uh, was uh, was not the only one that we you know that we used. But that's basically the way we defended it. And we put him on the stand and let him hear him get up there and say, "I don't believe I killed her, but I'm not sure of that." So it would have helped the uh, the prosecution's case if they needed uh, that assistance, it would have helped their case if they had uh, attempted to find the second female. Yes, that would have helped them. I'm, I don't know. I think they may have. Now, here is the thing about that. And again, you know, there's a lot of sort of guesswork in this. But <clears throat> I always thought that Almost everything in his confession could, I could have written it. I could have made the same statement from reading the newspapers. Now, one of the, one of the uh, sort of important events 
that occurred in the early part of the investigation was a waitress from one of the restaurants in town came forward on her own to the, to the police department and said, I think I saw Betty Gail Brown in the restaurant last night at 1.30, and she was with another girl. Now, that became a headline in all the newspapers, and the police did everything they could to try to confirm that. They took this, they took this waitress to the funeral, and there were hundreds and hundreds of people at that funeral to try to see if she could identify the other girl. Well, she couldn't. They took her to the burial services. They took her over to that dormitory where Betty Gale had spent her time studying and where she had lots of friends. And they took her and showed her every photograph of females at the Transylvania campus, and she never was able to identify one. Now, that died away completely when they found two uh, Transylvania male student friends of Betty's Gales who said, we were in that restaurant that night and she wasn't there. But all that got blown up and I always thought, well, even that piece of his story could have been pulled out of the newspaper. So, I mean, everything that I found in it looked to me like anybody could have written it who was around here at the time. So um, he went on the witness stand. How long did it take the jury to reach a decision? Well, the jury deliberated for a full day. Uh, we tried this case, and I think it lasted probably about seven or eight days. And then they got the case early one morning. Uh, and they deliberated all day, and then they, at, at about, I don't know, five or six o'clock in the evening, they told the judge they were ready to report. And so uh, he got everybody back in there and said, okay, what's your report? They said, we're hopelessly deadlocked. They said, we have deliberated, can't remember whether they said five times or seven times. I think he said, we've deliberated five separate times and we voted and the vote Every single time is the same. It was seven for acquittal and five for conviction. So you had almost a dead heat on the thing. Now that's the way it ended. It, it ended with a, with a hung jury. Now the judge reset the case for retrial for January. That, that trial was in October of 65, and they reset it for trial. Uh, and then, you know, almost immediately uh, after the first trial, we asked the judge to reduce the bail. He'd been in jail for a year, almost a year. And we asked him to reduce the bail to see if we could get him out of jail. And the judge did that. And Arnold's mother and one of her friends used their home to make a property bond. And he got out of jail. I'd say he got out of jail probably maybe three or four days after the trial. And uh, so they set the trial for January. They put it off until uh, June, and they put it off again without setting the date. And it just, you know, it went on. And they finally, they finally dismissed all the charges against him in 
1973. So, I mean, they just sat there in the, uh, on the court books for about eight years. Did you ever talk to him again? I talked to him. I had the most, one of the most interesting conversations I ever had with him while the jury was out. Uh, he was, they, they, they locked him up in a jail cell over in the old courthouse. You know, just a little small cell. And after three or four or five hours, I went over there just to check on him and see if he's okay. And uh, so I go in, he's real, he's real quiet. And he says, well, what do you think? And I told him, I said, well, I don't know. It's a real, it's a real close case. Uh, could go either way. But I said, I said, if I was on the jury, I could not find you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. He said, that's not what I meant. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, what do you think? Do you think I killed her? And I said, I don't know. I, ha I didn't have to make that decision to try to represent you, so I don't know. I said, it sounded to me like from your testimony that even you're not real sure of it. Now, you know, that was kind of the end of that conversation. He just said, well, I just wondered what you thought about it. And um, now, he gets out of jail about three or four days after the trial, and he never, he never came back to see us. I mean, we never saw him again after that. Uh, Judge Eblin or I, uh, but sometime, I'd say it was probably in the, in the early 1970s, he calls me in the middle of the night at home and he's drunk. Uh, he'd gone back to drinking almost as soon as he got out of jail. And he, he didn't call me for any reason. He would, you know, just, it was just talk. But he told me that he was in a homeless shelter down in New Orleans. Now that's the last contact that I ever had with him. He did come back here at some point because he spent a lot of time at the Veterans Administration Hospital out here getting treated for liver disease, as you would expect. And then he died from liver disease when he was 49 years old. That was in 19, it was either 1979 or 1980. But we never saw him again after we got him out of jail. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Robert Lawson, a former dean of the uh, UK Law School who's uh, left his uh, work at the law school to uh, write uh, this fascinating story, uh, which will be featured at the Kentucky Book Fair on November the 18th. Uh, Bob Lawson will be there, and he will uh, uh, love talking with people about this. Who killed Betty Gale Brown, murder, mistrial, and mystery? You say in your epilogue, uh, Bob, that you were asked a hundred times about your opinion about this. Uh, almost, I, under, uh, I understated it. <laughs> uh, thousands of times. Yeah. And, and you were you were first asked it by uh, the accused, who was later um, found not guilty. That's now he wasn't found not guilty. This was a hung, hung jury. Hung jury. Okay, yeah. so that's yeah. uh, that's a good uh, legal uh, uh, <laughs> distinction there. So. How do you leave it, and what do you say that people 
maybe we should leave them on the edge of their seats, but not everybody's going to come to the book fair. We know yeah. that, but they can ask you your, yourself, what, what's your conclusion? Uh, what, what do you write? Well, <clears throat> you know, I've, uh, I wrote in that epilogue right at the end of it. I, I didn't write that epilogue until the university press said, we need for you to do that. So I did it. But uh, as I say, I started out saying I've been asked this so many times, but what I found in the police records when I, when I uh, uh, was starting to write this book, the police gave me all of their files. I got 367 pages of police records. And I found in there a record about a meeting that I had with them. In 2008, uh, the police called me and asked me if I could talk to him about this case and about Alex Arnold. And I said, yeah, he's been dead for, you know, 30 years or more, and he never said anything to me that he didn't testify to in the case, so there's no problem with uh, privilege. So, yeah, I can talk to you. And they came out, and they wanted to know what I thought about it. And I told them, and they wrote this down. It was in the, I was surprised to find it in that police record that I told them I didn't know whether or not he killed her. But I told them that I think there are a lot of problems with that confession. I said there's everything that was in it was in the newspaper and the little things that weren't in the newspaper were incorrect. So they wrote that all down. Now, <clears throat> um, you know, I still, I'm basically uncertain. Uh, he was uncertain about whether or not he killed her at the end of it. Now, I, I said in the epilogue that if I had to decide, if I was in a position where I had to decide one way or the other, I would say that I don't believe that he killed her. But I would have to quickly say I'm not absolutely sure of that. And so there are all kinds of uh, reasons for that, but... Uh, I mentioned the fact that most of what was in there was in the newspaper, but I was always troubled by a couple of things. One of them was the way he came to believe that he did it. It was several months after the killing. He had a conversation with a man. He was in jail waiting to be sent to prison, and he had a conversation with a guy who'd been under investigation for the murder. And that man knew everything, and so they talked about it while they were in jail for I don't know how long. And he said that wasn't when he started to believe he did it. When he got sent to prison, he started thinking that I did it, and then he started dreaming about it, and he came to believe that he killed her. So all of that, the strange way in which he did it, and then he never, ever said I'm absolutely sure I killed her. When he talked to the detective, the first time he ever mentioned it to a police officer, he said, I'm 99% sure I killed her. So he was never absolutely certain. And then there was this, this business about the other girl being in the car. Uh, I always thought there is, you know, homosexuality in 1961 is very different than it is today. And I could never bring myself to believe that two girls who were gonna make love with each other would park in the middle of the campus in a driveway 
or somebody like Alex Arnold or anybody else could walk by and see them when they have thousands of other places where they could do that in private. And so I just never could quite bring myself to believe that part of it. And those are the kinds mm-hmm. of things that, that always created a doubt in my mind about whether or not he did it. It's a fascinating story, and I have two sort of final thoughts and, and, and questions. One, when Alex Arnold first told the police in Oregon and then uh, talked to you and uh, Judge Eblen, did he know that she had been strangled with her own bra? Well, he put that he put that in his confession. Uh, he but that wrote, had been in the paper. That had been in the paper. Okay. I mean, they had a photograph of it in the paper. Hmm. Front page. They had a photograph of the victim in the car lying there. They had a photograph in yes. the newspaper. They did. They did. One of the big problems in the case was now. I don't believe it was. I don't think it was necessarily the fault of the police. Uh, there was so much interest in this. Now, after they in, after they completed their initial investigation, that is the scene, which they they left that scene that night with not a clue as to who it was or why it happened. And then they had an autopsy performed. They took that car to the uh, to the forensic bureau. They ended up with nothing. And so I think it was the fact that they didn't have any leads that caused them to put more out there than they normally would put out there about a case. And that got out of control, uh, the, uh, particularly the part about the, the waitress who claimed that she saw, uh, saw her there with another, with another girl. Now, uh, legal minds would uh, be quick to uh, correct me for watching too many uh, television mysteries. Uh, Our good friend Ray Larson would uh, say that's all just uh, hogwash, all of the CSI and all of the DNA evidence and all of that. Is there any possibility, but I'm going to ask the question anyway in in reverence to to, to Ray, uh, I'm going to ask this question. is there any possibility that there uh, was DNA evidence on that uh, bra that could, today, with science being uh, criminal science being what it is, link Alex Arnold to um, to that case? I'm not sure. I, I guess I'd have my doubts about that. The uh, I thought one of the most interesting things about their on-scene investigation was the. Uh, uh, you know, they saw her bra hanging around her neck. Now that they all saw before they ever got in the car. And they get in the car, and the first thing they see is the two buttons on her blouse are unbuttoned, and she has no bra on. So they easily conclude she strangled with her own bra. Now this caused them to think that this was a part of a sexual assault or you know some kind of sexual event. But almost immediately, that withered away because they found that all of the rest of her clothing was was totally undisturbed. What they'd released to the newspaper as neat and imperfect array, that is, nothing was disturbed. They did an autopsy, and the autopsy left no doubt she'd not been engaged in any sexual activity. So... Uh, 
you know, they, uh, I don't think there was any forensic evidence. The only thing that they found, I mean, they searched that car for everything, trying to find something that would show another person in the car. They found nothing. Now, they did find some blood, but it was hers. They found that her head had been smashed against the dashboard. They found blood on the dashboard, and she had a cut on her head. They found a little blood on the window where she was sitting and a little bit in the floor behind her, but it was all tested. Same blood as hers. Now, in those days, you know, you didn't have DNA. It was just classifying it as, as you know, her blood. But they, the only thing beyond this that they found is they found three sets of fingerprints on the car. And they, for a while, thought that they really had some good evidence. They even went so far as to start fingerprinting of every male student on the transit campus. And they fingerprinted about half of them. It took them about a week to do that. They were going to fingerprint all of them. And then immediately it stopped. Is because some other fingerprinting they were doing proved one of those identifiable prints was her dad's. One of them was her mom's. And one of them belonged to a mechanic who'd worked on the car the day before. And so they had nothing. And they ended their investigation without a shred of evidence that they could follow that would have led them anywhere. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> since there was, since there appears to have been no sexual activity, I'm not sure they could have found any, uh, anything that would have led them even today to it. The book is Who Killed Betty Gale Brown, Murder, Mistrial, and uh, Mystery by Robert G. Lawson, a former uh, UK uh, dean of uh, the law school and renowned uh, uh, attorney and lawyer and, and uh, um, uh, professor at, uh, at UK, helped uh, Kentucky uh, so many, many years, and now an, an author who will be at the Kentucky Book Fair on November the 18th uh, at the Kentucky Horse Park at the Alltech Arena. I know he wants to talk with you about that. And Bob Lawson, we appreciate you coming by uh, for Think Humanities podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org iTunes, and SoundCloud.